Hello, you're listening to Mountain Talk Monday, and this is your host, Kelly Haywood, and I'm here in the studio with Tom Collins today, who is the Associate Director of the University of Kentucky Rural Cancer Prevention Center. Hello, Tom. Always a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Yeah, and we're here to talk about something that a lot of folks just don't talk about, and that is colorectal cancer. Yeah, indeed. Um, When we start talking about cancer, it's a little bit more acceptable to speak about some types of cancer. For some reason, when we start talking about colorectal cancer, perhaps because of just that part of the anatomy where the, the cancer is located, people are a little bit more hesitant to talk about it. A lot of folks, I think, try to avoid the screenings for it as well. And again, I think that's for the same reason. It's that particular part of the body that we, especially here in the mountains, are taught to look at as being a very private part of our body, a part of our body that we don't share with other people, we don't talk about. It's just not polite conversation to talk about our rectum, our colon, our bowels, but uh, it's very important that we change that mindset and we start looking at this particular part of our body as just another part of the anatomy that we have been given. Because there is the issue in screening of running a tube through the rectum into the colon, a lot of people are very, very hesitant to consider a colonoscopy. And fortunately, there are other options to a colonoscopy for primary or first-level screenings now. But still, the colonoscopy is the best screening that we have for colon cancer. Okay. Uh, What age should we start thinking about screenings? Okay. We work with the guidelines from the American Cancer Society, which indicates that anyone who reaches that wonderful birthday of 50, that's when you need to start doing colon cancer screening. However, very recently, there's been a number of scientific publications that have come out about individuals being diagnosed with colon cancer at a much younger age. And 50, which is opening up a whole new conversation about should these screening guidelines be changed so that younger people should be screened. The guidelines for or the recommendations for screening for colon cancer is a little bit confusing because you think of the easy part is, okay, age 50, it's time to start screening. But there's a second part to that recommendation. If you have a direct family member, that means mom, dad, brother, or sister, someone who shares the same genetics as you, very close gene from the same gene pool, if they were diagnosed with colon cancer, you should begin screening for colon cancer at least 10 years younger than the age at which they were diagnosed. So I give people this example, that if you, your mom was diagnosed with colon cancer at age 50, then instead of you waiting until age 50 to start screening, you should start screening at age 40. Okay. And you mentioned that there are some alternatives to the colonoscopy. What, what would those be? Okay, yes. Whenever the precursors to colon cancer normally is polyps. These polyps are abnormal growths of cells in the lining of the colon. These polyps periodically will bleed. They produce blood. So we have tests that we can use with a fecal sample when we do number two, when we defecate, that you can actually collect a sample, not necessarily of the stool, but of the toilet bowl water around the stool. And if there is blood present, that's an indicator that there's something going wrong in the colon. We use this test as a primary screening tool to tell people, 
it is very important that you get a colonoscopy, or at this time, it's not something that you need be, to be very concerned about. So we do the, the FIT test. That's what's a fecal immunochemical test. FIT's easier to say. So we do the FIT test on an annual basis. So every year, one time per year, we do the FIT test, so long as the results are negative on that test. If the results did happen to be reactive or positive, then we have individuals start talking to the persons with the positive test results about how important it is that they consider getting a colonoscopy. And we'll even provide patient navigation to help work the healthcare system so that that individual can get in to get the colonoscopy. And if you're suspecting for whatever reason, that you might need to have a FIT test or a colonoscopy, either one, do you need to go straight into a gastroenterologist or would you, your family physician be able to take care of that for you? Colonoscopies normally require a referral from a primary care provider. So the first thing that you want to do is talk with your primary care provider. This conversation can start on e from either side of the desk, but once you reach age 50, your primary care provider should be stating to you that it's now time to start thinking about colon cancer screening. But if your doctor is a little bit shy about initiating that conversation with you because it is that private area of the body that it's a little bit hard to have that conversation about, then take it upon yourself to mention it to your doctor. The primary care provider that you're working with then can start the process to actually getting you into a gastroenterologist for the colonoscopy. Or most primary care providers now, including our local health department system here, have these FIT kits, these FIT tests available that they can provide to you to take home and collect your specimen in the privacy of your own bathroom. Oh, okay. In fact, the research study that we're working with at the University of Kentucky uses this kit and seven local health departments of the Kentucky River District. They're actually helping us distribute those kits to individuals who come to the health department for primary care. Those individuals are given the FIT kit, they take it home, they collect their specimen, we provide them with a postage paid envelope, they place the specimen card in the envelope, mail it to me, I'm your lab guy at the University of Kentucky, we run the test, we will then tell the patient their results. At that point, we give them counseling as to wait next year and do this again, or your results were positive and it's very important that you consider getting that colonoscopy. So how prevalent is colorectal cancer in this area of Kentucky? If you look at statistics for the United States, Kentucky, our state as a whole, ranks number two in the whole country for number of colorectal cancer cases. So we're number two there, ranking only behind West Virginia. We do move into number one slot in a very horrible category, unfortunately, deaths due to colorectal cancer. So those individuals with late stage diagnosis who are actually dying from colon cancer, sadly, Kentucky falls number one in that category. And if you look at Kentucky more closely in terms of our geography, you can basically divide our state right down east and west of I-75. The eastern part of the state 
our Appalachian region versus the western part of our state, the numbers are quite different in terms of colon cancer. The statistics that are driving Kentucky to be number two in total colorectal cancer cases in the United States is happening in our Appalachian region. So here in eastern Kentucky, our home, our area is driving the statistics causing Kentucky to have those horrible numbers in the picture of colorectal cancer. Do we have any idea why that might be? Oh, yes, there's a number of reasons. One is just our sheer genetics. Sadly, we are predisposed genetically for a number of types of cancer, colorectal cancer being at the top of that list. The founding groups of individuals who moved into eastern Kentucky 200 years ago or longer, when they came here, they were very isolated. There's very few people here. And because of you've traveled over our mountains, you know it's very hard to find other people. So due to that geographic isolation, there was a lot of commingling of those family units, meaning the gene pool became a little bit shallow, perhaps. And that gene, which is called the Lynch gene, which makes us more susceptible to these types of cancer, especially colon cancer, that effects of that gene was sort of amplified in our population. And as we have dispersed out, and there's more people in our area now, that gene is more widely distributed. But among Eastern Kentuckians. So if you are a native Eastern Kentuckian who was born and raised here and has been here your whole life, just because of your genes, you have a high likelihood that you're predisposed to actually developing colon cancer. Well, that would be me. Yes, that <laughs> would be me. That, so, that, so all of us that we proudly wear the name Hillbilly, mm-hmm. uh, and I say that with extreme pride, if you could see me smile ear to ear, because I am very proud of that term. We have this one strike against us from the beginning, just from birth, that makes us predisposed to the development of this type of cancer. Then there's a number of other factors that come into play. There's always environmental factors that come into play with almost all types of cancer. And Here in eastern Kentucky, where we have used our natural resources, timber, coal, and so forth, in order to make our livelihood, in the process of doing that, we've unearthed a lot of things that perhaps should not have been unearthed. And they've made it into our water, they've made it into our food sources, which gives us a greater chance. And that would happen to any group of people anywhere where they're exposed to environmental factors, such as heavy metals, that maybe increase the chances of them developing cancer. So there are environmental factors that come into play here in eastern Kentucky for sure. And of course, that's a hard topic to talk about here in eastern Kentucky, but we have to face the facts. We live here and we love it here, but the fact is our environment has some negatives to it that may cause us to be more susceptible to developing cancer. And And I think that, too, is an incentive to just make sure that you get your screening. Absolutely. Because if you know you're already at greater risk just because of who you are and where you live, then that should be a little bit of a motivating factor to cause you to want to get the screening. And then there is additional elements. The way we eat. We love our food here in eastern Kentucky. We love our fresh green beans that we pick in the summer, but we don't necessarily love them just as fresh green beans. We add some pork to that or some ham or something and we boil them down. And because we do that, we may be taking away a lot of the nutritional value of our food just by the way that we eat. Also, 
we can't grow a garden the way that we used to when I was a boy. I'm an old man now. But when I was a boy, we, you know, we had backyard gardens where we grew a lot of our food. Now you get a lot of your food from the shelves at the grocery store. And sadly, a lot of those foods are packed with preservatives. A lot of those foods do not have the nutritional content that we would like for them to have. We here in eastern Kentucky, we may eat a lot more red meats than we should. We eat a lot of processed meats. We love pickled bologna and things like that. Yeah. And because of we eat things like that and bleached wheat, white breads, the diet is actually working against us in terms of colon cancer. Yeah, so when you're talking about these foods with a lot of preservatives, you're talking about the processed, the boxed food. Absolutely. The microwavable things. Yes, I have had a journey with, I have Hashimoto's thyroiditis, so it's a thyroid disease and it causes you to gain quite a bit of weight and it also causes stomach issues. So I have had a colonoscopy already at 38 and one of the things that I was looking at to keep my weight in check and my stomach health good is nutrition. And, and as I started learning, one of the things that was recommended to me was to shop just the periphery of the store so that you're getting the produce then the meats dairy eggs and then you're out (laughs) well i tell people all the time when you're thinking about your food eat as many things as possible that are standalone items so if you eat vegetables eat a vegetable that's just that vegetable or a combination of vegetables mixed together but try to leave everything else out leave out the excess oil leave out the salts leave out that piece of meat that we would throw in there to give it a bit of seasoning and yes we like taste so season your food according to the taste but cut back if you can when you look at a label of a food and you can't pronounce the ingredients in that particular product, it's probably not a good thing to eat that product. So read labels and look for things that you recognize. If you're looking at a bag of frozen broccoli and it says broccoli, but then 15 other chemicals that you have no idea what these things are, then Perhaps picking up just a bunch of broccoli, fresh broccoli, and steaming that or fixing it however that you would fix it would be a better plan for you than picking up that bag of frozen broccoli with all of those preservatives in it. Right. There's a meme that I've seen on Facebook that says, real food doesn't have ingredients. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I love that because I think... Real food should be recognizable. You know what it is that you're looking. You know where it came from, and you know how to how to prepare it. I said fix earlier, okay, and I probably I will say fixing. But my language, when I'm at home here in the mountains, my language goes right back to the language that Grandma and Grandpa taught me. So. Yeah, that's fine for our audience. <laughs> <laughs> no problem there. And speaking of grandmas and grandpas, another thing that I've heard as far as how to pick our food is look and ask yourself, would your great-great-great-grandmother recognize this as food? That really limits us here as to what food would be. Right. Uh, I mean, pickle bologna is something I pick on all the time. But, you know, every time I talk about it, then I want to eat it. (laughs) I don't, but I I would like to. But I think about that, even a couple generations before me, to think, 
who would think that that's actually a meat? Who would think that, who would recognize that as actually being true food? Even though, yes, it's delicious and sometimes you you really have a craving for it or a hankering for it, <laughs> then uh, you have to think about, is that real food? Again, I love your, the analogy you made. Would your great-grandparents recognize this as food? And if they wouldn't, then perhaps you shouldn't eat it. Cheese does not come in a can that that's aerosol. That's not that's that's not true food. I'm sure my grandparents would not recognize that as food. Right. That's why it's cheese whiz. It takes <laughs> a, a little whiz to right. get the cheese. Yeah. I saw a new one yesterday. Someone was at the grocery store and it uh, was pork brains in milk gravy in a can. And it was literally just on the shelf with the rest of the tuna fish and in that aisle. And I was like, really? <laughs> Who eats that? You know? Uh, and I think, oh, I remember that time that my mama had pork <laughs> brains. And yeah, it's a lot to think about, but I think we're at a pretty good time here in the mountains. For those of us who can't garden and such as that there's more farmers markets popping up all the time yeah i am so happy to see that and that's a trend that's been happening probably more and more so over the last five years where communities are really getting active in having a locally sourced food and i try to live by a rule and it's very very hard to do but try to pick foods that you could get within 50 miles of where you live. If you're getting your foods locally that were grown or that were produced or were manufactured, made, you don't manufacture food. You know, you, you, you cook it, you put it together. But if you can get food within 50 miles from where you live, then I think that's a very good rule as to you're getting fresh food, you're getting food that's very high in nutritional content, and you're probably getting food that has not been processed to the degree that it actually could be more harmful for you than nutritious. Yeah, and, and I know a lot of people talk about budget too, and that's one of the things that the community farmers markets have been working on. Uh, we have a program here called the Pharmacy Program, where your doctor can actually write you a prescription for fruits and vegetables, and you take it to the farmers market and spend it there. That that is fantastic. Yeah, uh, yeah. So they're more accessible every day, mm-hmm. and. That's exciting to me. But our local governments here in the mountains are getting involved in the process of helping farmers make food more readily available to local residents because they're making it more profitable for individuals to provide food on a local basis rather than growing something and shipping it out to other markets. So other than knowing that something is healthy or not, which I think people are becoming more educated about, what is it about these processed foods or food in general that can make us get cancer? Research ongoing every day, looking at whether or not specific elements with, and when I say elements, I'm just talking about a particle, not elements from the periodic table, but a compound or, or, or a chemical that actually has some effect on cells that changes the genetics of the cells such that they begin to replicate in an unnatural way, in an abnormal way. Because that's what cancer is. It's just an abnormal growth of cells. Those cells, due to a genetic 
genetic factor or due to an environmental factor around them has actually caused them to start reproducing at an extremely fast rate or reproducing cells that are very different than the parent strain cells. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about cancer. So more and more research has to be done in terms of whether or not a chemical is actually is a carcinogen, is something that directly affects that cell and causes it, is it to d become cancerous. And we know that there are a number of things, artificial sweeteners, for example, there are those. And then, of course, you'll find research articles that says, yeah, but you have to eat your weight in them before it becomes a risk factor. More and more research has to be done with food additives to let us know definitively which additives it is that's causing these cells to become cancerous. When we talk about colon cancer, I try to get across to people, even if you are doing nothing to reduce your risk from your diet, the greatest thing that you can do is get screened. Colon cancer doesn't happen overnight. Colon cancer is an extremely slow-growing cancer that has precancerous stages that are easy to identify if you will only do the screenings. So if you do the screenings starting at the recommended age, then it makes it possible that the precursors to cancer, those polyps which could develop into cancer, can be detected early and removed and you not necessarily even have to have any cancer treatment. No chemo, no radiation. You just simply remove the precursor before it becomes cancerous. Get those polyps out. That is the greatest thing that people can do, even if they're not willing or not able to do the other things to reduce their risk from their food, from their environment. Farmers in the Ohio Valley are waiting to see how President Trump's pick to lead the Agriculture Department might affect their fortunes. Questions over trade have held up Senate confirmation for nominee Sonny Perdue, and trade is also a big concern for regional growers. Many farmers have been big winners under the free trade deals like NAFTA. Nicole Irwin reports that while farm country voted overwhelmingly for Trump, his talk about scrapping NAFTA has them nervous. Jed Clark and his father farm 5,000 acres in Graves County in western Kentucky. They grow corn, wheat, soybeans, and tobacco. But right now, Clark is thinking mostly about corn. This is white corn. Um, on our farm here, we, we grow about 50% white corn and 50% yellow corn. Yellow corn is used mostly to feed livestock. The white corn is for people, and a lot of those people are outside the U.S. And it's used to make tortillas out of, uh, and a lot of my corn that I grow will be shipped to Mexico. So that's how it affects me personally as a farmer when, when we start talking about trade deals and start talking about NAFTA. Clark says that thanks in part to NAFTA, one of every four rows of corn grown in the state goes to Mexico. And a 130% increase in pork exports raised the demand for yellow corn. So despite the region's support for President Trump, Graves County voted nearly 4 to 1 in his favor, Trump's talk about scrapping NAFTA has a lot of farmers on edge. We understand that what elected Trump, a lot of the rural Americans, and we don't feel like he forget us, but what we hate to see is the importance of agriculture in these communities be lost over the importance of industry and trade. Clark and other farmers are seeing some mixed signals from the Trump administration. While criticism of NAFTA was a regular part of campaign rhetoric, a recent White House letter to Congress took a softer tone. And Trump's choice to lead the Agriculture Department, Sonny Perdue, 
has been supportive of NAFTA. We believe in looking at the real numbers is uh, NAFTA has been a win for uh, the United States of America. That was Purdue back in 2008 when he was governor of Georgia. All this leaves folks like Dave Salmonson wondering what the new president will do. Salmonson is senior director for congressional relations at the U.S. Farm Bureau. There's been a lot of talk about Mexico, and of course everyone's heard the comments from the Mexican government about potentially looking to other sources of supply from Brazil and Argentina, since the U.S. has 100% of the uh, imports of corn into Mexico. We don't want to give that up, and about 75% of Mexican imports of soybeans come from the U.S. Debate has raged over NAFTA's winners and losers almost since the deal was implemented in 1994. Ben Salmonson says the role it has played in U.S. agribusiness is clear. We went from $8.9 billion of exports to Canada and Mexico annually in 1993 before NAFTA to over $38 billion now. Ian Sheldon is the Anderson's Chair in Agriculture Marketing, Trade and Policy at Ohio State University. He says the president's agriculture policies are short-sighted. Under additional tariffs Trump has proposed, Ohio could face a double threat. Not only could the state be hurt by a loss in exports of corn and oil seeds, but consumers could also face higher fruit and vegetable prices. I mean, that's something I don't think the Trump administration's thought through very carefully, is a lot of the burden of increased tariffs or increased protection would likely fall on poorer consumers. Changes to NAFTA would likely have to be approved by Congress, which means nothing would be done overnight. But Sheldon says the president could more quickly change tariffs, and that could have global implications for corn and other commodity prices. Back in Graves County, Jed Clark says his mid-sized farm has done well under NAFTA. And amid the uncertainty about Trump's trade policy, farmers like Clark will have to look on the sunny side for now. Our Secretary Purdue, he's run a drainery. He understands the importance of trade. And, and from all the talk that I've heard about him, I think he'll be a strong voice in the administration. For the Ohio Valley Resource, I'm Nicole Irwin in Graves County, Kentucky. The Ohio Valley Resource is made possible with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and WMMT. I'm Kelly Haywood, and you are listening to Mountain Talk Monday on WMMT. Real stories, real news, real people radio. Brought to you straight from the heart of central Appalachia. Thanks for listening. I'm here today with Tom Collins. He's the Associate Director of the University of Kentucky Rural Cancer Prevention Center, and we're talking about colorectal cancer. Um, We talked about how we're more susceptible to it in eastern Kentucky than in other places. Kentucky's number two in the whole U.S. for number of cases. How treatable is this cancer if your screening comes back positive? Hopefully, when the screening comes back positive, we're talking now about the FIT test. If the screening comes back positive, we get a person to move on to a colonoscopy. During the colonoscopy, what we're hoping that we're going to find at that particular point are polyps, the precursors to cancer, and that those polyps can be removed during the colonoscopy, during the same procedure. And at that particular point in time, you have averted, you have 
prevented yourself from developing colon cancer. Now, when you have polyps detected, that means you go on a more frequent screening schedule. So that means that you need to have the colonoscopy done more frequently, perhaps every one to three years, or at least every five years, versus the person who has a negative colonoscopy who should be screened every 10 years. With those individuals, what we're hoping is that screening itself is prevention. The screening, just by doing the screening, you will find the precursor, and the precursor will lead us to recommend the colonoscopy. You do the colonoscopy, the precursor is removed, you're not going to get colon cancer. You continue to do your screening on the recommended schedule. If more polyps are detected, again, at future screenings, they're removed again. Again, you have prevented yourself from moving on to colon cancer. So again, that's one of the things that works in our favor in regards to colon cancer is that it is very slow to develop. And if you start your screenings early enough, then you can prevent it from happening. Now let's say that you're not someone who did early screening. You're someone who you suddenly notice that you have quite a bit of blood in your stool. You're bent over in abdominal pain several times a day. You have, feel like you're constantly bloated and gassy. It's just so uncomfortable in your abdomen. Then that individual goes in. They see their doctor. The doctor then gets them onto a gastroenterologist, and cancer is detected. Even at that stage, if cancer is detected early enough, even with all of those symptoms, it responds quite well to chemotherapy and radiation. And then there's another option of part of, meaning the piece of the bowel where the cancer is growing, can be resected, just taken out, removed, cut out, and you reconnect the pieces of the colon. This is done on a daily basis. It's basically considered a routine surgery now, this resection of the colon, of the bowel, and people can have very successful outcomes from that. Even when they have gone from just having precancerous polyps to now you were diagnosed with stage 2, stage 3 colon cancer. There's still a lot of hope, a lot of hope for individuals when they are diagnosed with colon cancer. It sounds like to me the key is just not to wait, even if you're afraid. Absolutely. You know, this is one thing where you look at the screening itself is prevention. The screening actually can save your life. When we think of screening, we think normally we think of the screening can tell you that something's wrong. But in this case, the screening, if we're talking about colonoscopy, is actually a procedure that can remove those things that would become cancer. Another thing to think about, I had a friend who works in healthcare who had all of those symptoms that you mentioned before and did not want to have the procedure done in the hospital where she worked because she's like, that's my co-workers. So she went to Lexington where she didn't know anyone to have the procedure done. We don't all have that luxury of being able to travel to have routine screenings done or colonoscopies. And I have a friend who is an obstetrician, and and she said, think about it this way. I see as many of these parts as I do noses. Exactly. It's just another part of your body. It is. And and we actually started this conversation by talking about getting over the idea that there is something special about this particular part of the body. It's just anatomy. It's everybody. I don't want to get crude, but, uh, you know, I've, I've heard many times that 
it's the same as opinions. Everybody has one, uh-huh. and uh, that particular part of our body is just a part of everybody's body. And it is a part of the body that can become problematic for us if we're not doing the things that we need to prevent those problems from arising. And as I said earlier, I want to offer a bit of personal experience with the whole process of colonoscopy and all of that because I wasn't expecting to have to have a colonoscopy, but I had those symptoms that Mm -hmm. you mentioned and talked to my family doctor about it. He put me in with the gastroenterologist right away, and before I knew it, he was telling me I needed a colonoscopy. And... It was a little bit scary, but I will say he put me under general anesthesia for the colonoscopy. And I'll say that the preparation (laughs) for the colonoscopy was worse than the procedure itself. And I could actually go to work the next day after the procedure. The procedure is not as bad now as it was just seven, eight years ago. But... Everyone hates the cleansing process, the cleaning out, because in order to have an effective colonoscopy done, you have to have a clean colon. So everything that we have been putting in there for all of those years, and there's a lot of foods that are very, very slow to digest, and they leave gunk in the pipes, and until that gunk is removed through the process of the cleansing that you have to go through the day before, the doctor's not going to be able to do a good colonoscopy. And in fact, you even run greater risk when you don't have a good clean out of something going wrong in the colonoscopy. Now, that's something that I hear a lot about. People say, oh, well, so-and-so went in for a colonoscopy, and the next thing you know, they had a perforated bowel, meaning tube was stuck through the bowel, and that caused them problems from the rest of the life, or they died, or such. Negative, horrible stories about colonoscopy that lead people to say, there's absolutely no way I would consider doing one of those things. And I would, would just tell people that, think of it mathematically. Every time you take an aspirin, you take a risk. Every time you take any medication, there's some risk associated with that. With every medical procedure, there is some risk associated with that. And occasionally, and in terms of colonoscopy, very rarely does something go wrong that actually causes a problem like that. But just one horror story, one bad outcome like that, and suddenly you have lots of people, especially now that we have social media, to broadcast a story to a a much larger audience in a very short period of time, that changes people's mindsets in terms of they were on the fence. They were thinking about having a colonoscopy, and then they heard this story or read the story on Facebook, and now there's like changed their mind. There's no way they'll do this. I challenge people, just think mathematically. Think of the odds of that actually happening, and compare it to the odds of you're not getting screened, and you're at risk for developing colon cancer, and you're doing nothing about it. Where do the odds lie in your favor? Getting this screening done and possibly something going wrong, which is extremely low chances that that would happen, versus I'm not doing anything to prevent myself from getting colon cancer and I'm at great risk for developing colon cancer because, again, who I am, where I was born, where I live, what I eat, those things are placing me at great risk. And if I'm not doing anything about that, then I'm taking much greater risk 
by not getting the screening than I am by getting the screening. So I just challenge people, think mathematically, do the math. The odds are in your favor if you get the screening. Yeah, and another thing I would encourage people to do is if you've heard a story like that, ask your doctor about it. They're the one that's going to be doing the procedure. Uh, If there's something to worry about, they'll be the one to worry about it. I tell people, never go into any procedure. Never even start taking a medication blindly. Ask your doctors, why are you prescribing this for me? Why do you want me to have this procedure? What exactly is going to happen during this procedure? Then go into every procedure aware of what is going to happen. Talk to your health care providers. They want you to talk with them because that shows them that you're invested in this process, that you're really thinking about this. I think every health care provider should be very happy when a patient does ask them those challenging questions. Yeah, I think sometimes when I go see my doctor, (laughs) they feel like they're spending a lot of time because I am. I'm always full of questions. And I think for us to take charge of our health care, we need to be. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another thing, some of our doctors in the specialties in this region aren't from here and they speak with an accent and they might be hard to understand. If, if you have that trouble, I would encourage you to ask if there's a nurse that could come in and help your doctor explain or something just until you can feel safe and satisfied. Yes, absolutely. I mean, because it's wonderful to have a healthcare provider who knows what they're doing. They're very highly trained. They're great professionals. But if they can't get across to you exactly what it is that's going to happen due to a language barrier, then it's very important that there's someone be someone there to help you understand that. I talk to people about individuals who do interpreting services, translating services from Spanish to English. If you're a patient and your doctor speaks a totally different language that you can't understand, then naturally you want to have someone in there to interpret for you. Well, it's the same thing if there's an issue with an accent. It's not that the, the provider doesn't speak English. It's just they're speaking a form of English which you don't understand very well. So it's very important to have someone in there who understands both. Who I love to say this, even though we're all speaking English, English, sometimes when you're speaking with our natural accent or an accent from another country that has learned English as a second language, just our accents alone require require an interpreter. I teach at the University of Kentucky and I with my students at the beginning of every semester I ask what students in the in the room are actually from Eastern Kentucky and I'll get some students who raise their hand and I'll ask those students okay if at any time you see these other students and they look confused please interpret for me so they understand what it is that I'm saying because especially after I make a trip like today and spend the whole day in the mountains talking I noticed I said it mountains I cut off a syllable there or letters there but when I speak in my natural accent, my natural dialect, I go back to Lexington and I speak with students who are from all over the world. They're going to have a little bit of trouble understanding me tomorrow in my class Yeah, because I'm, na- I'm more in my natural element. Yeah, I've had to try. I'm from Whitesburg. And that's where we are. You notice she really stressed that long I sound? Yeah. Whitesburg. Because we normally don't say that. We don't pronounce our I's that way. And even when I try to do that, people think I'm saying Wattsburg. Yep. And 
for the life of me, I can't make them understand that where I'm from. I usually end up having to spell it. Yes. Um, and when or I lived point in, to a map. Yeah, yeah. And when I lived in Louisville and would order Sprite in a drive-thru, I'd get French fries for some reason every time. <laughs> I'm like, it's got to be that I and there's something wrong there. Yeah, so it's uh, maybe they're having a hard time understanding you as well. And, yeah, exactly. Look, think of it as both ways. If you're frustrated because you're not quite understanding your health care provider, imagine the frustration that they're feeling as being the person that's trying to provide a service to you. And in this case, a life-saving service to you, they're not able to actually do a good job of that. So imagine the frustration that they're feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it boils down to just ask. Exactly. Ask the questions exactly. until you're satisfied. Okay. We, we were talking a moment ago about symptoms. Yeah. Um, individuals, especially of my age and after we get beyond 40, our colons undergo a natural change where we have small divots that form in the colon. We call that diverticular disease. And when there is an infection, meaning a food particle gets stuck in one of those little pockets, we have an infection. We call that diverticulitis. So individuals who have diverticular disease, also a a digestive tract issue called Crohn's disease, those individuals are at greater risk of developing colon cancer. So many of us, I had my first colonoscopy because I had diverticular disease and had multiple bouts of diverticulitis, which made my doctor very concerned, even though you're not, you at that point in time, I wasn't 50. So the doctor said to me, even though you're not 50, because you have this other risk factor, we want to start your screening early. So be aware of things like that as well when you're thinking about colon cancer. If you have another digestive tract issue, it may be something that would place you at greater risk of developing colon cancer. So there's a odd fact that has stuck in my head from the moment I heard it. I can't even tell you how I heard it or where. But it's interesting, and I wonder how someone could just go about their day in this condition. And... I was told somewhere, and it may be an urban legend, that when John Wayne passed away, that he had ate so much steak that he had like 45 pounds of digested steak or whatever it was in his body. So if you're not having regular bowel movements, how do you know if that's constipation and if that's going to then cause buildup of these chemicals? Mm -hmm. Is, Is that... Yeah, I don't know the the urban legend about John Wayne, and I would imagine forty five pounds of of steak backed up in your colon would 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 be something that no one could tolerate. Not even not even John Wayne. I'd hope but, not. <laughs> but uh, when when you eat red meat, if you do have steak tonight for dinner, you, that steak is going to be with you for three days. It's going to take your digestive tract about three days to actually process that steak that you eat tonight and actually get the nutrients out of it that is going to be absorbed into your body, then package the rest of that as waste and eliminate it from your body. So that's going to take about three days. So if you're eating red meat, steak, beef on a routine basis, not just for dinner tonight, but again, a hamburger 
hamburger for lunch tomorrow and then some other type of red meat the next day and so forth and so on and you continue have this as as a part of your daily diet then your digestive tract never has a chance to clear all of that so there's constantly as i mentioned to I referred to it earlier gunk in the pipes and that's exactly what is happening you need to think of your digestive tract as plumbing we normally think of our urinary tract as plumbing but your digestive tract is plumbing also you have intake your small intestine basically pulls out all the nutrients that it can from the food that we eat and then our large intestine processes whatever is left over to get rid of in the form of waste if you're overworking your digestive tract with those very slowly digested foods, then you're not eliminating them at the pace at which you're taking them in, which is going to cause you more and more trouble. I was vegetarian for five years, and I would come home and, and for Thanksgiving and get laughed at <laughs> over it. You know, so we're big meat eaters here, and I am once again a meat eater. I don't think I'll ever be vegetarian. I, and, and I was, <laughs> I, and, and, and please, no one who ever hears this, I hope you attack me for for being out against the red meat industry because I'm not because uh, I. Am not a vegetarian. <laughs> I'm an omnivore, and sometimes I think, yes, I go through periods where I'm a direct carnivore. So when I talk about this process, it's just a natural process. When I talk about the amount of time that it takes to digest meats, particularly, that's just scientific fact that I'm providing to you. It's not a bias one way or another, and I don't use it as a bias in terms of my own diet, but I do occasionally become more conscious of the fact that I need to moderate my intake and I need to mix my intake so making sure that I have a salad when I do have red when I have that steak or when I have pork chops or whatever it is that I'm eating making sure that I have a mixed diet that has some roughage in it that helps speed things along the plumbing and again helps remove the gunk from the pipes so that your colon is not overworking yeah, so that's your fiber, your leafy greens. Exactly. That kind of thing. And if we think about it, you know, we were designed to eat both animal and plant foods. We were hunter-gatherers before we were farmers. Exactly. So we were eating plenty of meat and red meat since the beginning of the beginning. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so if, if we do vary that up, if you think about a hunter-gatherer, how they would have accessed food. And, and when you mentioned John Waymore, even anyone, if you notice that you're having some abdominal discomfort, that you haven't been able to use the bathroom regularly, that you do have some constipation, you do have feel this bloated feeling, change your diet. Your body is telling you, you need to do something different. And that different thing that you need to do, but you may need to do at that particular time, is just add some fruits and vegetables to your diet to help things move along. Yeah, and it doesn't necessarily mean laxative. No. Are laxatives damaging to the bowel? I've read studies that say yes. I've read studies that say not necessarily. Laxatives mainly change the water content 
inside of the bowel whenever you think of extremes one way or the other. So if you have a laxative in the system that's pulling fluid into the bowels, just think of that fluid's being pulled from somewhere else. So what is it actually doing to other parts of the body in order to do its job? So if you have to take laxatives or you feel that you are taking laxatives and they provide you some help and you're taking them on a very infrequent basis, that means not all that often, then they're probably not going to cause you any harm. But if you find yourself having to take laxatives just so that you can have a bowel movement on a regular basis, then you need to discuss that with a healthcare provider because there is an underlying problem that's causing you to turn to these laxatives on a frequent basis. And our body doesn't want to hang on to no. this waste product. <laughs> Right. Yeah, and, and usually we feel it if it happens. Right. For sure. And, and and I tell people also if you drink coffee in the morning, coffee, one benefit of coffee other than just waking us up in the morning, coffee actually helps regulate our digestive tract. So before you turn to an over-the-counter laxative, Perhaps you may want to think of something that we do on a routine basis anyway, such as have a cup of coffee. Yeah. Or even eating an apple, the peel of the apple, thinking about varying your breakfast a little rather than bread, eggs, meat, cheese. Maybe add a fruit or a vegetable. Always. I encourage people as much as possible, add fruits and vegetables to your diet. What can people do today to learn more about their risk for colorectal cancer? Should they talk to their grandparents, their parents about family history? What should they be talking to their doctor about? There's two things that everyone needs to do. One is very, very simple. Count the candles on your birthday cake. Because <laughs> when you, you know how old you are. So when you are approaching 50, you need to start thinking about this. Not at 50. At 45, you need to start thinking about this. Well, nobody in my family that I'm aware of has had colon cancer, but I'm approaching 50, so it's time for me to start thinking about having this procedure done because it's recommended for everybody once you reach the age of 50. So that's the first thing that I encourage everyone to do. And at, at that age, around 45, start doing your research on what actually is involved in getting a colonoscopy. And also talk to individual researchers such as myself about what are alternatives to a colonoscopy. What can I start if I'm not ready to do that colonoscopy? At least tell me step one that I can do that may actually lead me to understand it's important that I get a colonoscopy or maybe it's not necessary that I and investing a lot of thought in a colonoscopy at this point in time. Now, please don't get me wrong. I'm strongly in favor of getting a colonoscopy at age 50. But for all of those people who are just turned off by the idea, at least think of an alternative. And the FIT test that we provide free of charge to anyone right now, that test is an alternative. It's a starting point. I like to tell people that it's a starting point. The second thing is just what you mentioned. Know your family history. Start talking to your, your immediate family. You don't have to go to second and third cousins that far out. You just need to know about mom and dad and all your brothers and sisters. Know about the immediate family. And if anyone is having digestive tract issues, and especially if anyone has had to have polyps removed or someone has 
had a diagnosis of colon cancer, then that tells you you need to start thinking about starting your colon cancer screening at a much earlier age. Because we are sadly seeing more colon cancer cases diagnosed in individuals younger than the age of 50. Yeah, that's something that my sister-in-law, who is a colon cancer survivor, she has been without treatment, I think, for going on a year now. She's 38. So she was diagnosed, I think she was 36 or 37 when she was diagnosed and went through treatment and resection and all of that at that young age without any forewarning, just basic stomach problems. It is happening on a more frequent basis, but I also like to point out to individuals that the guidelines or the recommendations for screening, we gave those at the beginning of our conversation, age 50, younger if you have a direct relative who has been already been diagnosed. Even though we're aware that people are being diagnosed at a younger age, the number of those individuals, there hasn't been enough study done to say, is that a significant number? Or are we just more aware of it because information is much more readily available to us? And because we hear of, sadly, a situation like your sister-in-law, does that one case, is that enough to actually make us start thinking this is happening more frequently than we thought? So that is an, an area where study is beginning uh, and looking at if there is, in fact, a significant number of younger people being diagnosed with colon cancer. And if that is found to be the case, then the recommendations for colon cancer screening should be lowered in order to accommodate earlier findings for those people so that they can have effective treatment and perhaps not develop the cancer. The scientist in me has one more question, and I'm wondering if this is a modern human disease, if this is more plaguing to modern humanity than it was our ancestors past. Oh, that is a very tough question for for a scientist to try to answer. Uh, But I would say, just thinking thinking logically of what are the causative agents of colon cancer, that that is probably not the case. That abnormal growths of cells, which that's what cancer is, has probably plagued humans as well as many other animal forms as long as they have been in existence. So the moral of the story is? Screen early. Screen early. Know what the recommendations are. And if you do have a positive indication on any screening test, know that your screening recommendations change. You need them more frequently. But, okay, short version of the, of the takeaway. Colon cancer is preventable. And the FIT test is available for free at all Kentucky River District health departments. We have seven health departments in the Kentucky River. Uh, all of those sites are providing the the uh, FIT guard, uh, excuse me, the FIT test free of charge, and the the processing for that test is free of charge. We even pay for the stamp to mail the specimen to Lexington. So absolutely, cost you nothing. Yeah, and you can't argue with that. No. I mean, especially for those of us who ha- don't have insurance, 
Everything is questionable steal. right now in terms of how healthcare is going to change. Kentucky has been extremely proactive in terms of colon cancer screenings and providing funding to help individuals who were uninsured. And now the guidelines we're thinking are changing to individuals who are underinsured to help them actually pay for the colon cancer screenings. Kentucky was a model for the rest of the country and is, was being looked at as something to replicate in other places in, in the United States as getting more people through the door for colon cancer screenings. And we definitely, considering the picture of colon cancer in Kentucky, we definitely need to be doing everything we can to get more people through the door to be screened. And this program will be available for you to listen again online at www.wmmt.org. And I will also put some of the contact information for our local health departments in case you're wanting to question about the FIT test. (laughs) Thank you. I thank you for coming all this way, Tom. Oh, this is a day home for me. So thank you for letting me be here. All right. Thank you. If you or a loved one has been or is currently a user of heroin, please listen closely. You may have become aware through news reports over the last months that the number of overdoses from heroin in the area are on the rise and many are proving fatal. This is due to the drug being cut with potent synthetic chemicals. You may use your normal amount of heroin or even a smaller amount and still suffer from an overdose. Van Ingram, the director of Kentucky's Office of Drug Control Policy, explains what makes dosing unreliable. The heroin that we see in Kentucky is not from Afghanistan or that region. It's from below south of the border. Heroin, of course, is an agricultural product. It comes from a poppy, something that you have to grow. Well, the cartels have realized, well, you know, we can move away from an agricultural product that requires labor, that's dependent on weather, that's dependent on time it takes to grow it. We can move away from that. We can buy chemicals from China and produce our own synthetic opioids. So fentanyl is often an end-of-life drug, but it's a very strong painkiller. So you can take a little bit of heroin and a little bit of fentanyl, mix it together. The user is going to get that euphoric effect, but because fentanyl is 30 to 50 times more powerful than heroin, it takes just very little to get there. In 2014, We saw fentanyl involved in 121 overdose deaths. Last year, fentanyl was present in the bloodstream of 420. If that dealer doesn't get that mix just right, it's going to be a fatal overdose situation. This is going to be the new norm. Cartels are going to stick with this business model, move further away from heroin and more into these synthetic drugs. But I feel like we have an obligation to warn people the heroin you think you're buying may not be heroin. From all of us at WMMT, please be careful and spread the word. To find help for addiction, you can call the Narcotics Anonymous hotline at 1-855-319-8869 or the Drug and Alcohol Helpline at 1-800-432-9397.
visit www.wmmt.org for a list of local resources. This has been a public service announcement of your community radio station, 88.7 WMMT.